For how many here, if you're honest, does the thought of sharing the gospel with someone scare you? Make you slightly uncomfortable in one way or another? Well, you're not alone if it does. Personal evangelism is likely a scary thought for most Christians. I mean, there are exceptions. There are people who are especially gifted as evangelists, people who can just do that well. And they're not likely afraid. But most people are uncomfortable when it comes to personal evangelism. I mean, it's one thing to invite someone to church, but to actually, really that's what you're doing, confronting them about their spiritual condition, explaining to them why they need Jesus, it can be a scary thought. It can cause knots in our stomach just to think about going to do that. Now, I know that this has certainly been my experience. I remember when we were at Fort Gibson and we first started doing evangelism. Uh, going out and knocking doors and visiting visitors. I could not count the number of times I knocked on a door and, and, and prayed in my mind, Lord, let them not be here. right? Because I wanted to leave them some information and go away. Now, if they had visited our church, I wanted them to come back. If they were lost, I, I wanted them to be saved. But I really didn't want to have to be the one to talk to them about those issues. I just kind of wanted it all to work out. I didn't have to have an uncomfortable conversation. I was terrified to speak to them about the condition of their souls and their need for Jesus. And I was thinking about that today. And really, if you think about it, it's kind of weird that we, and and by we I mean we, me too, can be so fearful about evangelism. Right? I mean, I don't consider myself to be socially awkward. I can carry on a conversation with pretty much anyone about pretty much anything. And most of the rest of us can too. We can talk to someone about the weather. We can talk to someone about their car or their job or the latest movie or anything else. Except their need for Christ. Now what is it that makes us so afraid of sharing the gospel with others? Have you ever really stopped to consider that? And I don't think it's like we're afraid of having a deep conversation. That's not it. Because we don't just, our conversation, think about the conversations you've had this week. They weren't all about the weather or a cool car or how are things on the job. And, and they weren't all surface level conversations, were they? This week we've likely had deep, meaningful conversations with someone. We've talked about hard things, whether it would be politics or whether it would be something else. We have had deep, meaningful, hard conversations with people, most likely. So it's not that we're afraid of just being, we're afraid of going deep. It is specifically about the gospel. It is specifically about talking about Jesus and their need for Him. I've read a few studies and articles on sharing the gospel. And virtually every article on sharing the gospel or book about sharing the gospel covers fears at some point. I've even read a few specific articles on reasons we're afraid of sharing the gospel. And there's, I mean, if you find 50 articles on why why are people afraid to share the gospel, you may find 400 different reasons. Everybody has their own idea about what's there. And when you look at them, though, there are some that no matter where the people are, whether it's someone writing in China or someone writing in Korea or someone writing in Afghanistan or someone writing in Oklahoma, there are some things that tend to overlap and are common among all people everywhere about the reasons we're afraid to share the gospel. Uh, and what I want to do is there were there were four uh, that I thought about as I was praying about this study tonight, that that resonate most with me, right? For most places, I would say these are things that either are or have been fears in my life, and in talking to other people, these are the ones that I find are the most common. Now, the goal tonight is to address the fear, but then to show that there is a truth that overcomes the fear. Right, Because the, the message tonight is overcoming fears. It's not about just acknowledging we're afraid to share the gospel. 
It's not just about admitting what these fears are. But it's about overcoming those fears so that we can go out and proclaim the good news that Jesus saves. So fear number one, I'm not sure I'm saved. One of the traits that made the Apostle Paul such a powerful witness for Jesus was his confidence in the power of the gospel. Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto all men, right? Jew and Greek alike, for all who believed. Paul was absolutely confident that the gospel was sufficient to bring conviction and conversion into somebody's life. Now, Paul's confidence in the power of the gospel, I think it came primarily from two things. But really, it's, it's one but broke up into two areas. His confidence in the power of the gospel came because Paul had seen the gospel transform lives. Paul had seen what the gospel could do when it was proclaimed and when it went forth. He had seen pagans burn their witchcraft books because they were now devoted to Jesus. He had seen Cities become so enthralled with Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel that people who, who made idols were afraid for their livelihood because nobody was buying idols anymore. He had seen that. But he had seen it in others, but Paul had also seen it in himself. Right? I mean, Paul was religious before he met Jesus, but he wasn't a Christian. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was a persecutor of the church. He described himself as a, a blasphemer, as an insolent man. Really, the picture is that Paul, not only did he persecute the church and, and harm the people that he persecuted, the Christians, he enjoyed he enjoyed causing suffering on those who called upon the name of the Lord. And yet, one day all of that changed. Jesus so completely changed Paul that he knew no matter what happened, if he went to a town and he preached and nobody was saved, Paul didn't say, well, the gospel doesn't save anymore. Paul said, oh, I can look at the dude in the mirror and I know. The gospel is powerful. I know Jesus can change lives. One of the reasons we are often afraid to share the gospel, one of the reasons we are so hesitant to talk about Jesus, it is a, a lack of certainty of our own salvation. When we look at our own lives we're just not sure we see the kind of transformation that we're telling other people it can bring. I mean, just think about in your life and who you are and how you are in your life. Do you see how the gospel of Jesus Christ has made a, a real difference in who you are? Or when you look at yourself, are you basically the same person you would be if you didn't come to church? I mean, has Jesus made a, a fundamental shift, a change in who you are down to the very core of your being? If we can't look in the mirror and say, I know I'm different because of Jesus. That lack of certainty of our salvation will always be a hindrance. It will always hinder our passion for telling others about Jesus. It will always hinder our confidence in telling people, if you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, He will save you. He will forgive you. He will set you free. We just won't have the confidence necessary to plead with people like Scripture says that we should, that they must come to Jesus and be saved. But we don't have to wonder about our salvation. In fact, Scripture says that we shouldn't wonder about our salvation. Scripture says 
we can and we know we should know for sure about whether or not we're saved. And if we're not sure, if we don't know, then we should do what Scripture says and examine ourselves. I love this verse. I reference it very often because it's a super important verse in the Bible. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves that Jesus Christ is in you except you be reprobates. Now, I always want to point out with this what Paul does not say. Paul doesn't say, did you pray a prayer? Paul doesn't say, are you a member of a church? Paul doesn't say, were you baptized? And did you go under? Paul doesn't say, did you write down a date in your Bible when you were saved at VBS? Paul says, examine your life and see if you can prove that Jesus is there. And if He's not, if you prove that He's not, it's a sign you're reprobate. It's a sign you're not really saved. That when Jesus comes into our life, we're not the same. If we were to go through the gospel accounts of people who encountered Jesus, the only people who left the same were those who rejected Jesus. He always changed them. So what kind of changes should there be? How do we examine ourselves? Well, again, we, we look to Scripture. Scripture gives us a series of tests that we can look at and we can say, by this, I know I'm born again. Right? Do I strive to obey God's Word? And we don't have time to look at all the verses tonight with this, but look those up at some point. But here's what John says. John writes that we know that we know God when we keep His commandments. He goes on to say those who say they know God, but don't keep His commandments. Now this is John's word, not mine, are liars. And the truth is not in them. Now the truth not being in them is, what he's saying is, they're not saved. So look at your life. Do you strive to obey God's word? And, And not just the parts that you like. But the hard parts as well. I mean, do we strive to turn the other cheek? Do we strive to take up our cross? Deny ourselves daily? Follow Jesus? Do we strive to be merciful? Do we strive to seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness? Do we strive to be cheerful givers? Do we strive to do all things without griping and complaining? Do we strive to make disciples of all nations? On and on we could go. But do you strive to do what the Word of God says? If you do, John says there are strong grounds to believe you are genuinely saved. Do I live a holy life? John writes that Jesus came to take away our sins. And since this is the case, those who who know Jesus and those who live in Jesus, they don't make a lifestyle of living in sin. It's not the pattern for their life. In fact, John says those who live in a sinful pattern for their lives, John says, have never actually Known Jesus. That's what John says. John goes so far as to say, those who live in a sinful sinful pattern for their lives, that they are of the devil, and that those who do not live righteously are not of God. Again, that's John's words, not, not mine. So is your life more characterized by sin Or by holiness. If by holiness. Then John says you have good grounds to believe that you are genuinely saved. Thirdly. In 1 John it says. Do I genuinely love others? 
John says we, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren, is what he says. And it means particularly other Christians. He goes on to say we know they've passed from death to life because those who don't love their brothers actually abide in death. In other words, they are still lost. So do you, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, this would it, it would mean your immediate church family, but it can't be limited to that. There, we are not the only brothers and sisters in Christ we have. It would extend to the worldwide church of Jesus Christ. Regardless of nationality, regardless of anything else. If they are a believer in Jesus Christ, there is a, a familial love that we should have for them. And if we do have that love for other believers, then John says that we have good grounds to believe that we are genuinely saved. And, and then really what would be the final one? There's a lot more that John says about all of those, but they're kind of interspersed throughout his book altogether. Do I believe Jesus? John says in 1 John 5 and 1 that everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ is born of God. He also says that those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, that they love those who have been saved by Jesus, connecting back to love. He goes on to say in verses 11 and 12 that life is in the Son and those who have the Son have life and those who do not have the Son do not have life. Everything rises and falls on Jesus. Always. Everything always rises and falls on Jesus. So do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Who came to earth through a miraculous birth. Died a sacrificial death for your sins. And, and literally, bodily, rose from the dead on the third day. If so, John says you have good grounds to believe you are genuinely saved. Now, we don't have a lot of time, but there's a couple of extra points about each of those that I want to mention. First is, on the top three, it's not talking about perfection. right? It's not that I perfectly obey, that I'm perfectly holy, and nobody ever gets on my nerves. If that's the case, no one is saved. And if that's the case, John wasted his ink when he wrote, Brethren, I would that you sin not, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Right? I mean, so that's not perfection. But it is a characterized lifestyle. If obedience to God's Word is the exception and disobedience is the rule, there's a problem. If obedience is the rule and disobedience is the exception particularly the desire to obey, then I have good grounds to believe I'm saved. If sin is the, the rule of my life and holiness is the exception, there's a problem. If holiness is the rule and sin is the exception, particularly the desire to be holy, there are good grounds to believe I'm saved. If love, if love is the rule and hatred or anger is the exception. There are good grounds to believe that I'm saved. Secondly, Jesus really is kind of the key to all of it. Because as John writes the, that book, repeatedly he connects it back to knowing God. If you know God, you obey God. If you know God, you live a holy life. If you know God... You love others. If you know Jesus, you, you live as Jesus lived. If you know Jesus, you, you love those Jesus loves. If you know Jesus, you, you strive to live free of the things that sent Him to the cross. Right? So, the first three, they're, they're a big problem. Not just, well, it's a moral problem. No, it's a Jesus problem. Because if I know Jesus, then I have a desire to obey His Word. If I know Jesus, I have a desire to live in holiness. If I know Jesus, I have a desire to love those He died to redeem. 
And where those things are absent, I should absolutely wonder if I know Jesus. But if those desires are there and they flow from my connection to Jesus, there are good grounds to be certain of our salvation. And we're meant to be certain. John writes, these things have I written unto you that you that under you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know, that ye may know that you have eternal life, that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. This is one of the reasons John wrote what he wrote. He was to give this series of, of tests to see so you could know for sure. I've been in an uncertain about my salvation. It is a miserable place to live. And it's not where God intends for us to live. God intends for us to know that we've been born again. We have eternal life. If you aren't certain of your salvation, you'll never be a bold and effective witness for Christ. This is something that we have to settle in our hearts and in our minds. And it's really something you kind of have to settle on your own. I've had people come to me and say, Preacher, Am I saved? Man, I can't answer that. I'm not God. Right? Have you... Do you believe in Jesus? Do you strive to obey? Do you live a holy life? I mean, if you say yes to those, then, well, yeah, probably you are. If you say no to those, then, well, no, probably not. But in the end, what I say doesn't matter because I could always be wrong. This is a very personal issue that we have to... Get with the Bible and get with prayer and get with God and line out and know. Scripture teaches in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There is the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. We can know and we should know. This is probably the most important issue to settle that there is. So, fear one, I'm not sure I'm saved. Fear two, I don't know enough. Another common fear that comes up in in virtually everything that's ever written is fear about not being able to answer all the questions somebody may have. And that is a valid concern, as people will ask questions. They will have questions. However, there are two reasons we cannot let this fear keep us from sharing the gospel. First is, you'll never, ever, ever know all the answers to all the questions somebody could ask. I mean, seriously, there are people who have questions you have never imagined. When you hear it, it will blow your mind that that is legitimately a question that they have. It will have never crossed your mind. An example, several years ago I was sharing the gospel with some students. And I kid you not, this is an exact question. Can God, you said God can do anything. Yes. So can God heat up a burrito so hot he can't pick it up? Listen, I've read several books on apologetics and how to defend the faith and common questions. I don't have a book that has that question in there. I have no idea how to even address something like that. You don't want to go, that's the stupidest question I've ever heard. I mean, even if you think it is, because then you've blocked them out. Right? So if you think, well, I'm not going to go until I know all the answers to all the questions, we'll never go. Because there are always questions that will come up that will blow your mind. Now, that may not be a, a typical question. I've only had that question once. But it does illustrate the reality. There are questions that could be asked that you, you can't prepare for, you can't study for, you, you can't, you will have never thought of. It's not a question of will you get asked a question you don't know the answer to. You will. The question is when. When will that question come up? When will that come up in your life? But here's the reality. A question you can't answer is not fatal. Those that we're talking to about Jesus, they do expect us to have answers. And we'll talk about that in a minute. 
But if you, if they ask you a question and you go, wow, I have no idea. I never thought about that. Let me, let me do some research and I'll get back to you. They're not going to say, you're not a real Christian because you don't know everything about everything there is to know about this. They're going to be like, if they, if they are a genuinely a searching person, seeking truth, they're going to want to know your answer. Okay. I had a guy years ago. Uh, I was sharing the gospel. We were kind of arguing back and forth, debating. It wasn't really an argument because we were friends. And he asked me, why is the, the time of Jesus' death different in, in Mark from John? I'm like, it's not. And he opened it up and the times are different. And I'm like, I don't have a clue. I have never in my life have I ever noticed there's diming difference. I said, let me, let me get back to you. You know, he didn't say, you're a moron. Clearly, God's not real. He didn't die and go to hell that night because I didn't know the answer. He said, okay, tell me. When you find out, let me know. So I went and I looked in a book and I asked some people. And I found out that, that Mark wrote to Gentiles. And so Mark kept time the way the Gentiles did. And that John wrote to Jews. And so he kept time the way the Jews did. And they didn't keep the same time. There was no universal time. So what John says is the time of his crucifixion and what Mark says the time of his crucifixion, even though the numbers are different, it's really the same time. There was an answer to the question. I just didn't know it at the time. He was like, oh, okay, I think I, think I had heard that. that. That's a perfectly legitimate way to handle a question that you don't know the answer to. And I, I think this is my own... Theory. I don't think I can prove this with Scripture, but it's my theory. My theory is, again, a genuine searcher, someone who genuinely wants answers. When you admit, I don't know, let me search that out, and they see that you're putting in time and effort to find the answers to their hard questions, and they see that you are honest enough and humble enough to say, I don't know, then when you come back with an answer... You've put in effort to them. They're, they're not just a notch on your Bible belt, you know. They're, they're someone that matters. You've put in effort. You're not claiming to be Lord overall with all the answers. You are a person just like them. And I think it gives you more credibility with them when the opportunity arises. Again, I do think that will also be with someone who is a genuinely seeking truth, not just someone who's a mocker or a scorner. But that's a, for a different lesson. Second reason. And I've spent too much time there. To keep from witnessing because you're afraid you won't have all the answers is to forget the primary job of a witness. In a court of law, the main job of the witness is to simply tell people what they know to be true. They are to tell what they've seen with their eyes and what they know to be certain. There's really not much difference in being a witness for Jesus. I really believe that that one of the best things we can do to be a witness, to share the good news, is just to tell others what God has done for us. Let me show you this. Turn to Mark 5. It's a familiar story. We won't read it. We're just going to look at a few verses. It's page 561 if you have a pew Bible. Mark 5 is the story of Jesus casting out the legions of demons in the man. He casts out legions of demons. The man had lived in the wilderness and he had lived naked and chained, couldn't hold him and all of these things. But Jesus cast the demons out. The people come and they find him and they find that the man is clothed and in his right mind. And they ask Jesus to depart. And when Jesus went to depart, in verse 18 it says, and when he was come to the ship, he that had been possessed with the devils, prayed him that he might be with him. Right? I want to go with you. These people will probably forever know me as the dude possessed with legions of demons that lived on the hill, naked and cutting himself with stones. I just soon come with you now. Jesus, you would think, would say, absolutely, come with me. Let me disciple you. Let me give you further healing. Let me help you. Instead, what Jesus says is, go home to thy friends. Tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. Now, that's important because notice what he didn't tell him. 
He, he didn't tell him, go and debate the law with the scholars. He, he didn't say, go and try to answer every question that someone may have about who God is and what God's like. No, all he said was, you go and, and simply tell people what Jesus has done for you. And you look at verse 20. And it says, And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. It seems he was fairly effective at just telling people what Jesus had done for him. Every Christian can and should do this. And we'll talk more about testimony in a later lesson. But for now, the idea tonight is, even if you don't have all the answers, we can tell others what Jesus has done for us. We see a great example of that in John 9. Right? Jesus heals a blind guy. The religious leaders, they're, they're baffled by that. Nobody's ever healed the blind before. Caused them to see. Who is he? What's he done? You're not, you were never really blind. They called his parents. Tell us if this is really your son that was born blind. And if he is, how does he see? And they said, well, that's our son. And he was born blind. I don't know how he sees. He's, he's of age. You ask him yourself. And they kept questioning him and kept questioning him and kept questioning him. And how did he finally answer all of their questions? Whether the man's a sinner or not, I don't know. I know one thing. I was blind, but now I can see. That's all he said. That was it. What is this? Or how do you explain the numbers here? Do you really believe a donkey could talk? I don't have all the answers. But I know this. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I can see. I can take you to places where He worked in my life. I can show you prayers that He's answered. I can show you a difference that He has made. I know who I would be apart from Him. Let me tell you about what Jesus has done for me. We can give powerful, compelling witness. Just by sharing things like that. Now, all of that is not to say we shouldn't study Scripture regularly to try to give answers. Because Peter does tell us that we should be able to give an answer to the hope that we say that we have. A good working knowledge of Scripture, it is important. And we should strive for that. We are compelled by Scripture to study Scripture. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Four quick hits. We are told to study. Command. That is a command. And it carries with the idea of diligence. In fact, a lot of other translations do say be diligent. Work hard. That's the picture. Second, we are called workers. And the work is in the Word. And we are to be diligent workers in regard to the Word. And we are to be diligent workers in regard to the Word so that we can rightly divide, that we can properly understand and explain that to others. That's a command. You and I are commanded by God to study diligently His Word. To see it as a job. This is our work. And we do it so that we don't have to be ashamed and we can answer questions and we can rightly divide the word of truth. That's more than reading a devotion. It's more than listening to a sermon. It is consistently being in Scripture learn all that you can. Now something to help with evangelism is pick a few verses that you're going to use to share the gospel with. Whether it be Romans Road, John 3... And we'll look at some other ways again later. But pick those out and study them real good. Be sure that you know them. Look at them in multiple translations. Kind of have an idea. You don't have to memorize them. But just to have a working knowledge of what those verses say and what they mean. So that you can answer questions about that. Because one thing to do is when someone asks a question. Is to say, well that's a good question. But let's deal with this right here right now. Right? Let's, let's focus on this and we'll come back to that later. But that's, again, something we'll talk about later. If we're able to explain a couple of verses of dealing with the need for salvation and how to be saved, we, we have enough knowledge to share the gospel. I mean, if you can 
explain John 3.16, you have enough knowledge to share the gospel. So, fear number two, I don't know enough. Fear three, I don't want to be rejected. We'll cover this quickly. In his book, Surprising Insights from the Unchurched, a man by the name of Dr. Tom Rayner, he classified unbelievers into four categories. Um, one through four, U1 through U4. Uh, and they went from basically those who were the least resistant to the gospel. In fact, the U1s were pretty open and often even seeking. They were like, if somebody would come and talk to me about Jesus, I would probably get saved right now. To the U4s. The U4s are the ones who are not only resistant to the gospel, but they are hostile. I mean, if you talk to them, they're going to respond in anger. Probably in America, not with violent anger, but with profanity, with anger, with slamming the door, kicking at you and spitting on you, uh, things like that. Now, here's the thing. Most of us, what we imagine, we imagine that everyone around us is, is a U4. And we imagine that the moment we begin to talk to them about their soul and about their need for Jesus, they're, they're instantly going to get angry and they're going to start snarling and slobbering and snotting and, and want to punch us in the head and say hateful things to us. According to Dr. Rayner, there are very, in fact, the U1s, or the U4s are the, the rarest type of unbeliever in America. Now, it's different probably if you go to, say, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, different world over there. But in America, that sort of angry, violent unbeliever, they're not the norm. Now, that's not to say that they're all U1s either. That's also a very rare. Most fall somewhere in the middle of somewhat uninterested, somewhat, well, I'll let you tell me what you've got to tell me, but I don't care. But the, the ones who are going to respond in anger are very, very few in number. And that should be encouraging to us because, again, I think when we talk about being rejected, how people are going to respond, that's what we imagine is going to happen. We imagine if we talk to our friend about Jesus, that we've, if we've never had that conversation, we broach the subject and begin to talk to him, that they're immediately going to be like, I hate you, you're stupid, you're scum, get out of my house and never come back. The reality is, that's not very likely. Most likely, they will say, I don't, I don't care, I'm not interested in that. Well, sure, go ahead and show me. Well, that was, that was fine, thank you, but I'm not interested in it. Now, I'll admit that I have not shared the gospel as much as I should have in my life. But I can really only recall one or two people who have ever responded in, in anything that would even be, be overly unfriendly, much less angry. <laughs> one guy, it was here in town, in fact, I was out knocking doors and handing out literature. And he opened the door. And he said, can I help you? And I said, I'm from the Free Will Baptist Church. And I'd like to give you some literature and talk to you about Jesus. And he's like, I'm a Muslim. I don't care about that. But I'll take your literature. Slam! That's the rudest that's ever happened to me. Right? And even with that, he took the stuff I had to give him. Now, he may have taken it and thrown it away. That's what I do in the Jehovah's Witness offer stuff. I take it, tear it up, throw it away so they can't give it to anybody else. But that may have been what he did. But, but either way, that's the harshest I've ever had a response. And, and so I think it's unlikely that when we share the gospel, the, the harshness is going to happen. Now, that, again, that doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily jump up and embrace it, because they're not. But even those who respond in anger, um, even those who don't respond in anger, it's still going to feel like rejection. Because if you care, and you want them to know Jesus, and they're like, no thanks, I'm not ready, or I don't want that, it feels like rejection. And in that moment, we have to remember what Jesus said. He that heareth you, heareth me. He that despiseth you, despiseth me. And he that despiseth me, despiseth him that sent me. In the end, they're rejecting Jesus and not, not us. Now, truth, honesty would compel us to admit it still feels like they're rejecting us. But there's nothing we can actually do about that. We cannot let the fear of rejection keep us from sharing the gospel. In fact, when we let the fear of rejection be a major motivator in our lives, we will not share the gospel. I'm reading a book on evangelism right now, and the author addresses this. He says, there's something in all of us that wants to be liked. 
And most of us have discovered that telling people they're sinners on their way to hell and that Jesus is the only way to heaven isn't the most popular message. Of course, there is something to be said for being sensitive to the timing and the manner in which you share the gospel. But if our first thoughts when the Holy Spirit prompts our heart to witness is fear of how we're perceived, we will never evangelize as we should. Our self-consciousness will blind us to the eternal realities of heaven, hell, and eternity. We cannot let the fear of rejection keep us from sharing the gospel. And then finally, the fourth one, I'm inexperienced. When I joined the army, I had to learn the skills of map reading and land navigation. And now neither of which are terribly complicated, but both of those skills require you to do it to learn. I mean, you can sit in a classroom and you can have all the classes on how to read a map and how to plot a course and how to go. But that's not real. That's just a theoretical idea of how it should work. In the end, you only really know if you know how to read a map and use a compass when you're dropped off in the middle of the woods and have to find your way back. Right? It's only in that practical environment do you ever really learn how to do land navigation. It's really not any different with sharing the gospel. It's good to read books on evangelism and classes like this are, are excellent. But in the end, the books aren't going to make us able to share the gospel. In the end, this class can give us some tools for it, but it's not going to perfectly equip us. What we actually have to do is, is get out and share the gospel. We only learn by doing. And there is a, a level of confidence that we build as we do it. And it's with anything. I mean, it's not just evangelism. Think about anything. With, with land navigation. The first time they dropped me off out in the woods, I was terrified I was never going to find my way back. But by the time I got out of the army, they could drop me off out in the woods with a map. I could find where I was, use my compass, and I could find my way home. I, could, I just knew how to do it. I did it all the time. Now, today, it's been 20 years since I've used a map and a compass like that. If they were to drop me off out in the woods with a map and a compass... It would be really hard for me to find my way back. It's kind of a use-or-lose kind of skill. Evangelism's like that as well. It's been, I haven't shared the gospel as much as I should have in recent years. And, and I admit, there's a, there's a bit of fear in that I'm, I don't know. I don't remember how to do it as much as I used to. I don't. That lack of confidence is there. Most of us are, are, all, are slightly fearful anytime we start anything new. Right? And if you've never witnessed before, you haven't done it much, or it's been a long time, there will be an element of fear that goes with it. That's normal. But there's only one way to overcome the fear. And it's not to wait till the fear goes away. It's to actually get out and do it. Now this fear, we aren't the first people to ever experience this. Turn to Jeremiah 1. And verse 4. Through tens, what we'll be looking at. And we'll fly through here because time's out. Jeremiah 4, it says, and The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. This is Jeremiah's call to be a prophet. Now, clearly, there are some differences between the call to be a prophet and the call to be an evangelist, to share the gospel with others, but there are also some similarities. In fact, there's a great deal of similarities. Prophet's main job was to go to people and say, here's what the Word of God says. You should repent and do what God says. In essence, that's what we're wanting to do as well. We take the Word of God to people. We say, here's what the Bible says. You should repent and you should believe in Jesus. Now, God's plan for Jeremiah before he was born was for him to be a prophet. Now, God's plan for us is probably not that we're going to be a prophet to the nations. But it is God's plan that we would make disciples of all nations. It is God's plan that we would preach the gospel to every creature. It is God's plan that we would proclaim repentance and the remission of sins in Jesus' name all over the world. And it is, it is God's plan that we would be His witnesses among all the peoples. I mean, that's all throughout the great commissions that Jesus gives. This is 
without a doubt, God's plan for the life of every disciple. You, me, everyone. Now, Jeremiah says in verse 6, O Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. Jeremiah really wasn't a child at this point. He was like 20. Rather, he was inexperienced, and he felt inadequate and afraid because of his experience. Right? You ever felt like that? Oh, whew, I can't. I just, mm, this. But notice how God responds. God didn't tell Jeremiah, oh, okay, okay. Well, here, read this book on being a prophet. Take some prophet classes. And when you feel ready, go and do prophet stuff. No, he, he tells Jeremiah this. Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatever I command thee thou shalt speak. And be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Right? God tells Jeremiah not to limit himself because of his inexperience. Just go and say what God says to say because God is going to go with him, to take care of him, and to tell him what to say. Really, what God is telling Jeremiah is, is this. Focus less on Jeremiah and focus more on me. That's the essence of what he's saying to him. And that's God's message to us as well. If, if you and I, if we spend all of our time Dwelling on our inadequacies. That is all we'll ever see. I don't know about you. Maybe you're not this way. I'm very aware of my flaws. I'm very aware of my deficiencies in life. And it's very easy for me to say, well, I can't because of this or because of that or I haven't this and I've got that. But if all we do is spend our time looking at ourselves and our flaws and our inexperience and our deficiencies... We'll never, we'll never do what God's wanting us to do because we're never going to be perfect. We are never in this life going to look in the mirror and see the exact likeness of Jesus in us. We should see His growth and we should see more, but it'll never be complete. What we have to do is look at, at God. Look at His sufficiency and not our insufficiency. I heard a, a sermon last week and the guy said an interesting statement. He said, People that are introspective rarely do much for the kingdom of God because all they're focusing on is themselves. When what they need to do is get the focus off of themselves and look to God. And when they see God and His greatness and His goodness and His majesty and His power, they realize He is more than great enough to overcome whatever's wrong and whatever's flawed in our lives. For many of us, the great need is to stop being so introspective and just look at God and behold His beauty, His power, His glory and trust in that. God goes on then and He he tells him in verse 9, Then the Lord put forth His hand and touched my mouth and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have set... See, this day I have set thee over nations and over kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build... And to plant. God is going to take care of Jeremiah. He is going to empower Jeremiah. He is going to make sure Jeremiah can do whatever it is that God wants him to do. And again, it's the same for us. When we go out to do God's will in sharing the gospel, the Bible has promised that God will give us power to witness. In Acts 1.8, it talks about but you, you shall receive power. In Luke 24, Jesus says you'll be clothed with power. God will empower us and God will make us fruitful. Uh, this is a great passage to think on when talking about evangelism. I've planted Apollo's water, but God gave the increase. Now, so neither he that planteth is anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. He that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward for his own labor. The point is we don't save souls anyway. My deficiencies and your deficiencies can no more keep someone from coming to Jesus through my witness and your witness than our strengths are the reason that they come to Jesus. We don't save anyone, not now, not tomorrow, not ever. We plant a seed, we water a seed, 
God makes that seed grow. God doesn't need us to be perfect planters and perfect waterers. He just needs us to be faithful planters and faithful waterers. God knows about our deficiencies. God knows about our fears. God knows we haven't done this very much. God knows how afraid we are. God knows how difficult He is. And yet what God says is, quit looking at yourself and just look at me. You sow the seed. You water the seed. I'll do all the heavy lifting. Now there are likely more fears that we have for witnessing. And if I didn't address your particular fear, let me leave you with a quick final thought. Fear of doing fear of anything other than God, it's never from God. Fear of anything other than God is never from God. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power and love and of a sound mind. Therefore, be thou not ashamed. The testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou a partaker in the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Fear of criticism, fear of rejection, fear of inadequacies, fear of any of those things. Those are never from God. And if you say, well, those aren't my fear. My fear is this. That fear, if it is keeping you from doing the will of God, it is not from God. God has not and will not give us a spirit of fear. If we live lives driven by fear, that is not the spirit of God compelling us and leading us. And we know what we're supposed to do, what Paul's point is, that fear, Timothy, you feel, that's not from God. God has given you something, though. Power, love, and a sound mind. And because of that, you go be faithful. You go be faithful despite affliction. You go be faithful despite hardship. You go be faithful despite fear of rejection, your inadequacies, fear of all of these things. In spite of all of that, Timothy, you go. God works in us and through us and for us to make us willing and to make us able to share the gospel. Our job is to be willing to go, to be willing to do. And when those opportunities arise, to say, this fear I feel, it's not God keeping me from it. And to do it anyway. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And we bow in, our present, in your presence and we surrender our lives to you. Have your way. Make us bold proclaimers of the gospel. Give us opportunities this week to tell people about how good Jesus is and all the great things he has done in our lives. Father, start this with, with small things and let that build our confidence that we can do it more and more. I know, Lord, I want to be a faithful evangelist to share the gospel every day. Make us a people that, that reach people for you, that do our dead level best to reach everybody in this town. They would know Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen.